Welcome to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson and Barton Simmons. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. I'm Chip Patterson. That's Barton Simmons. We're back with you. It's here Tuesday morning. The NFL Draft early entry deadline has passed. Uh, Kyler Murray is announced for the NFL Draft, as you no doubt know by now. But we're going to be getting into uh, some of the teams which got a little bit of a boost. Maybe some players announced they were coming back. Some teams which saw uh, an, an exit, an exodus, which might change our thoughts for 2019. But uh, before we get to that, Barton, how are we feeling? How are we doing? Uh, another week of the off season. Now we start to settle our depth charts. It's uh, it's a, it's, it's a nice it's a nice step back, a nice calming time in the college football news cycle. It, well, yes and no. Uh, if you're interested in the um, the days of our lives, that is college coaching carousel. Oh, the assistant it, coaching carousel. Yes, we do need to. Yes, <laughs> the, things are not the calm assistant on that. Coaching carousel is is madness right now, and. I think given that the – I mean, it used to be at least you'd see the head coaching moves in late December and then you'd see some of the assistant moves trickle out and it gets sort of watered down towards February signing day and then after signing day there was a flurry. But now I think with with so many head coaching moves earlier, with the signing day earlier – uh, man, these these the the coaching carousel, the assistant coaching carousel, is is kind of wild right now, and it's starting to slow down a little bit. Um, but it's it's that's been sort of interesting, keeping it rolling. I've been I've been following that along with um, final rankings for uh, the class of 2019, and of course, keeping an eye on the uh, NFL draft declarations. Well, all right, so I'm going to put you on the spot here. Two questions first. Where are we in terms of the contact process for wrapping up the 2019 recruiting class? Like, can coaches be visiting right now or calling? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Friday, actually, I believe, was they were allowed to get back on the road. And so they've been, we're here talking on Tuesday. Coaches are visiting prospects, in-home visits, uh, um, evaluating the 2020 and 2021 classes, which is a big part of the new cycle you know this usually in january almost everyone they do a little bit of junior evals but almost everyone was out there securing their class babysitting commits making sure the guys that they wanted to sign are going to sign now there's just a little bit of that and a lot of of getting out you know pounding the pavement finding 2020 2021 kids juniors and sophomores um and so yes so coaches are full go on the road official visits next weekend uh about you know, and then signing day is like February 6th, something like that, I think. So follow up to that is as somebody who has covered the industry and the recruiting process for uh, more than a decade, what is, do you have any personal thoughts or feelings on uh, if, if the system should or could be adjusted given the, given the importance of assistant coaches to establishing relationships with prospects and given the amount of turnover and change that we're seeing I mean, it's not 12 months a year, but it certainly seems like the the rotation there is is only going to continue to increase. Like to me, 
the I am I'm more than a step removed from that process, but it feels like that is something worth addressing if the trends of this offseason are going to continue. It's stupid. It's it needs to be. I mean, it's look and from a business perspective, this is great. Hey, we got two signing days instead of one. February nineteenth, we had our you know highest traffic day in twenty four seven sports history. Uh, you know, other than making it hard to Christmas shop, it's it's you know it's great for for me. Um, but like th- this is this was supposed to be for the kids and for the student athletes, and I th- and I think. The thing that was most concerning that needed to be addressed was every once in a while you you read a story in the local paper uh, or the about the kid that was dropped a week before February's signing day because the new staff came in reevaluated their board he wasn't a take anymore and the kid is left without a home right um, and that is you know that is an unfortunate part of the recruiting process but the reason that we all read that story every year is because it happens once or twice a year and ultimately that's not that big of a deal that kid will if that kid has to go to an fcs program uh or d2 school he's still getting his you know his school paid for he'll be okay everything's gonna be all right um it's just you know, a little bit of a tough couple weeks for him but he'll be okay and i, I don't mean that in, a, in like a in a unfeeling sort of crass way but i, I mean that honestly like there's, there are some negatives, and, and if it's limited to one or two guys every class, no big deal. But c- contrast that with now, you're getting and, – and I'm not – there's a lot of the early signing period stuff. There's a lot of layers to it, and I could dig into it extensively. But I think the, the, the biggest problem now to me is the fact that guys are signing in February under the pretense that they will be playing for one coach. In December. And – in, De- in December, yeah, sorry, yeah. and a week later, are finding out that not only is their assistant, is their recruiting coach gone, not only is their coordinator gone, their freaking head coach is gone. And I, you know, you don't sign with a school for an assistant coach because typically that guy won't be there for the extent of your uh, your stay, for the extent of your eligibility. In most cases, the head coach won't be there, so so buyer beware there. But for a, a head coach to not even be there for spring practice after you signed with them, it's just, I mean, that's a, that is a new aspect to this that I think is, is I think creating a major issue. Um, and I think it needs to be addressed. And I, I just, I think the early signing period is unnecessary um, because of that, if nothing else. And there's plenty of other reasons why I think it's unnecessary, but I think that's the main one. Man, that's, and, and there was no way that anybody could have predicted that until we put it in place. You probably could have predicted it, um, but it would have been hard to envision it to this degree. I mean, look at this year. I mean, well, I was yeah. thinking about somebody who signed with Alabama. You know, Alabama does, we give them all this credit. Like, a, after the first early signing period came and went, and they, they kind of got exposed, uh, they, they made sure that they were on it and they locked out all their kids down. Great, great showing. And now the entire offensive staff is gone. I know you yes. said you don't commit to an assistant coach, but again, I'm just being removed from it. I was like, damn. If you were, <laughs> if, if you were an offensive lineman, if you were a wide receiver, if you were 
you know, a quarterback who is trying to commit to Dan Enos or a wide receiver that wants to be under the the guidance of Josh Gaddis or, or, or any like you might have known that Mike Loxley could have been on his way out, but the whole Dagum staff, I mean, whew. well, yeah, but I'm and and even I mean even more so than Alabama is maybe somewhere like West Virginia, um, where sure because Alabama you you know ultimately you're signing up to play for Nick Saban and you sort of trust all right. I, he throws in front of me yeah, yeah, I mean, that's what the kids say all the time. They say, I committed to Alabama to play for Nick Saban because Nick Saban was going to make me into the best player I could be. That is the stock answer, and I do believe that those 19-year-olds believe it when they say it. But let's say you go to West Virginia, and you signed up to play for Dana Holgerson, and Dana Holgerson's spread system, and, you know, you he leaves. I mean, Dana, Dana Holgerson and his offense is – is is if you're an offensive player, I mean that's pretty heavy factor in your decision to go to West Virginia. And then he leaves and Neil look, we all think Neil Brown's a good coach. Neil Brown now goes to West Virginia, but it's still a different coach. It's a it's a different system. Yeah, he has air raid roots, but it's not it's 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 a it's it's different than what you signed up for. Um and and that's doesn't even again, like we can't we're not even touching on all just the coordinators and the coordinators are everywhere. Um, changing, changing homes and changing spots. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think if, if, I mean, if you got guys that are having relationships with a head coach, uh, and that guy leaves and the coordinator leaves, um, I mean, maybe, maybe a better example of that is Tony Gibson, who's, um, West Virginia has been, you know, finally got them playing really good defense. He's he's gone. Wolf uh, he pack. just got hired somewhere. Oh, NC State is that where he is? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good hire so, by Dave Dorn. You know, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it's just not it. It doesn't work. You know, let's let's it, the ultimately the early signing period benefits uh, coaches, time management, and their efficiency in January on the recruiting trail. Uh, but it does benefit the student athlete in that sense, and in the sense of having an, an understanding of who, what your best options are at the time your decision comes, because uh, they can get leveraged into signing at this program in December, uh, not realizing that if they hold off, they'll have several other options in January. Um, so you know, there's my there's my soapbox. Um, I would say woe to the players that committed to Mark Rick to Miami, but that class was number 39 in the country. So I guess we have to, we have to move forward, <clears throat> but excuse me, uh, Dan Enos uh, introduced as the offensive coordinator for Manny Diaz at Miami. And part of that recruitment part, part of that process to me, a big part of the Dan Enos story for his arrival is a, uh, the positive grades that he gets for his work with Jalen hurts to make Jalen Hurts a better downfield passer. And it is also rooted in the fact that now Miami is a player to get Jalen Hurts over the weekend. I think we said uh, he was at Maryland on Friday. He was at Oklahoma on Saturday. He was at Miami on Sunday. Look into your own personal crystal ball. How would you prognosticate the future of Jalen Hurts? Well, um... I mean, look. If I'm if I'm Jalen Hurts, I, I don't know how I turned down Oklahoma. Right. How do you turn down Oklahoma? How do you look at what they've done the last two years with those quarterbacks? One of them being a one 
one-and-done guy. Heisman trophies, college football playoffs. How, how do you look at those and, and, and not want to jump up a word with a, with a starting job there for you and say, let's do it? Because ultimately, hey, the reason Kyler Murray is getting NFL first-round buzz isn't because Lincoln Riley really cleaned up his mechanics or you know molded him in one year to be some NFL model. It's because he put up silly numbers. Historically great offensive numbers. Stuff on yeah. the field. Yeah. And so ultimately if the goal is playing in the NFL, the best your, your best chance at, le- at least getting drafted there. I, I get there's sort of there's sort of factors involved and like you want to develop as a passer and, and you need, you know, a, a, it's it'd be it'd be great to have a coaching staff in place, but hey, I'll take my chances with just putting up s- stupid numbers in some offense. And I'm not just talking about this situation. I'm talking about period. If I'm talking to a high school kid that wants to play in the NFL and he's like, oh, I, I need to get under center in this offense, that, man, just go where you think you're going to be the most successful. <laughs> because right. wherever you're the most successful, that's what's going to be appealing to the NFL coaches. And then they'll think they can fix you and, and, and make you into what they want to be. So I, that, to me, it's like hard for me to see that. And, and if I'm Jalen Hurts and not want to go to Oklahoma. Now, certainly he's got a great relationship with Mike Loxley at Maryland. Certainly he's got a great relationship with Dan Enos at Miami. Um, and, 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 I mean, those, I would imagine, are appealing. But, I mean, sell me. Like, what, what, what am I missing? Why, why would you pick either of those programs over Oklahoma and the embarrassment of skill riches that they've got? unless you believe that unless you think it's somewhere in your mind that Spencer Rattler is going to start over you just because at Maryland and Miami there is like you've got a lot of room uh, to go in there and be able to be successful enough to win that starting job like I because all right you you mentioned on this podcast that it was reported that Lincoln Riley may have told Spencer Rattler he's not going to be in the graduate transfer market. To me, when Austin Kendall leaves, that leaves Lincoln Riley some room to be able to say, yeah, I did say that, but now we've got a shortage, so now we've got to entertain this. And I I only wonder for the, the Spencer Rattler portion of this if the Oklahoma connection... Like, if I'm Jalen Hurts, I go to Oklahoma. But I, I, I'm, as somebody who's prognosticating this, I wonder if the personal relationship between Riley and Rattler and the personal relationships between Hertz and Loxley or Hertz and Enos end up sending him to Maryland or to Miami. Yeah, I mean, it, and, and certainly the way he's developed over the last year under Danny Enos, I would imagine like that to me is probably a more compelling pull than Mike Loxley because Dan, Danny Enos has worked with quarterbacks as a quarterback coach, has done a good job with Jalen Hurts. We've seen that development take place. Um, so I, I do get I get that, like the just the personal appeal, the emotional appeal. And and there is a um, you know there there's a, a, a an analytical way of looking at it and saying, well, a business decision can be made here where, look, Danny Enos is the right quarterback coach for me to continue this development. Um, and so on that end, I could, it makes sense. But, man, it would be it'd be tough to turn that down. And I think the Spencer Rattler threat, and, again, Spencer Rattler is the number one quarterback in the country heading to Oklahoma, true freshman, but he's not enrolling in the spring. He's mm. a summer enrollee. 
So I, I don't see Jalen Hurts going in there and losing a job to a true freshman summer enrollee. Um, especially, you know, I think he'll be given the benefit of the doubt uh, as an early as a as a grad transfer, anyways. So with the Alabama staff clearing out reports as of right now, things seem to be trending towards Steve Sarkeesian making a return to the Alabama coaching staff, likely as offensive coordinator. Uh, it, to on the surface, my initial reaction would be uninspired or a shrug. But at the same time, I don't think that an offense that has Tua Tagovailoa, uh, Jerry Judy, the Bolitnikoff winner, Devonta Smith, Henry Ruggs, Najee Harris, there are limits to whether I think that the offensive coordinator hire was going to have an impact on the productivity of the offense. Still, what do, what do you make of uh, Sark's return to Tuscaloosa? I mean, uninspired or shrug, that's a tough grading scale, I feel like, when you consider, I mean, look, they... What was what was the Mike Loxley hire? And that was that was a shrug, right? It was 100% and, a shrug. And 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 uh, Steve Sarkeesian is, I mean, if you're getting an NFL offensive coordinator, that has already been a successful college head coach and offensive coordinator um, at, at a really high level. Um, so I don't know. It it, it kind of it's probably a good hire. It's 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 again. I mean, do I know too many know Falcons to... fans? I feel like I I feel like the Falcons did not have lovey dovey feelings for Steve Sarkeesian. Yeah, I mean, but I, the NFL is weird. And I I look, I didn't watch I didn't watch any of the Falcons this year, but and then I've seen all the Twitter hate for Steve Sarkeesian for the Falcons too. But the NFL, I really think there's so much like inside baseball, like just. The, the, the reason they do things, the approach that they take, it's they're playing at such a high level. Like I do think that you can be a really, really good offensive coordinator in the college game and just not have a ton of success in the NFL. I mean, I'm here in the Nashville. Matt LaFleur is is I mean, the Titans were putting up impressive offenses this year, and he was like the hottest name in football and like just got hired for the um for the uh uh, Green Bay Packers job, and so it's. I just I don't really put a lot of weight in like. All right, their offense wasn't. Oh, like, like to to be like, well, the Falcons were only fifteenth in DVOA this year. Right, <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. like fair. I mean, so hundred a hundred percent fair, and especially when we're talking about uh, Steve Sarkeesian, who, yes, as you mentioned, like he did, he took over Washington when Washington was in the pits. And he got and like he might have been seven wins Sark, and he might have bumped his head against really breaking through with the Huskies in a way that Chris Peterson has been able to. But uh, they they messed up some Stanford seasons, like they caused some problems for some Oregon teams and some uh, other Pac-12 championship hopefuls during his time there. So there is your it is it is fair that you you go back and you point out that in college, outside of his. His personal pitfalls, the track record is, is still speaks for itself as uh, he should deserve probably more thumbs up than I'm giving him. Hey, he's playing with a stacked deck. <laughs> right. I mean, and as I mentioned, I yeah. I mean, like, who's, like, is, is so great. Like, I don't, I don't know who would be a sexier name. And, and as we go through this thought experiment here, but, like, say, would Graham Harrell be a sexier name? Would, or let's say, would Mike Yursich? I mean, that's a, 
Ohio State just hired him. That's a good hire. Uh, if he was hired for the Falcons, what is our confidence level that suddenly the Falcons are have like one of the best offenses in the league? Probably pretty low, right? Like I think if you reverse if you reverse it, like Steve Sarkeesian is, I mean, since Steve Sarkeesian to Oklahoma State, I bet they have a pretty good offense next year. I, so I'm there's there's if I'm an Alabama fan, like I don't have there's no there's no I think I, I am encouraged. Like it's it's not even like a a neutral feeling. I think it's a positive feeling to me if you're getting Steve Sarkeesian, a guy who's already a proven play caller in, in college football. I just saw so many good options on that staff, right? And I'm just and okay, so let's let's keep going with on this. On the one. Alabama staff? Yes. Okay. Like Josh so, so are you saying so you're saying but look, look all right. Okay, go ahead. Who are the good, other good options? Dan Enos, Josh Gaddis. Okay. Dan Enos might might be a great coach. Might be a phenomenal offensive coordinator. But the last time we saw Dan Enos as an offensive coordinator, it was at Arkansas as the program was declining. Mm. And and so like that's where I think these a lot of guys like Steve Sarkeesian now has a bad rap because of you know whatever happened with the Falcons, while Dan Enos has a good rap because he's been at Alabama. I mean, throw anybody at Alabama, they're going to have success. And Josh Gaddis, while I think he and we'll talk about Josh Gaddis in his new role, he is he's as and and Nick Saban should know how good he is, and I think he is a, a one of the rising stars in the coaching industry. But I think objectively, you look at Josh Gaddis and Steve Sarkeesian. Josh Gaddis has never called a play in his life, as far as we know. Um, and Steve, so I think if you're Nick Saban, you got all this talent coming back, and why not go with a kind of a safe bet with Steve Sarkeesian as your offensive coordinator? And like Sarkeesian's not going to be the Alabama offensive coordinator forever, so. He'll hang around for two years, and then you, you know, and maybe you start to work Gaddis in as a true co-offensive coordinator, and um, and and give him the pass games, whatever. Uh, but I, I would argue that Gaddis and Enos are not on paper better offensive coordinators than Steve Sarkeesian. Now, if you've got, you know, Nick Saban having coached with those guys, feels that they are better, then I get it. It's fine, but. On paper, it's, I think that's a hard case to make. Maybe I am. Maybe I am too scarred by Tampa and uh, Alabama's third quarter against Clemson in the 2016 national championship. Bo Scarborough goes out. Alabama offense turtles up. Deshaun Watson comes back. That was a. That was that. That seemed like a a, a poor second half coaching performance from my seat and that is unfair for me to expand that singular moment to cover an entire coaching career i will give you that so what about josh gaddis he's at michigan now and we've been looking at michigan's offense as being uh, a point of frustration for some uh you know something that a, a group and a unit that when it is playing lesser competition is able to just just roll over and yet uh, when it plays against some of the elite defenses has, has real trouble being successful as Jim Harbaugh is bringing in Josh Gaddis and sort of remolding the way that that offense works. What are the expectations for the Wolverines? Boy, I mean, I, I mean, I'll credit Harbaugh for this and I mean, it's a, it's a ballsy hire 
and it's it's a aggressive hire. First of all, Josh Gaddis had he he said on the on Jim Harbaugh's podcast, he said he had he had sat down with Nick Saban and gotten his ass chewed for taking the Maryland job. So he had he had told Saban, "I'm going to Maryland." Michigan calls right as he leaves that meeting at like 10 a.m. And then by 3.30, they got a deal signed. And so, you know, it was sort of a 13th hour move for uh, Harbaugh to make it. And again, I think it's, first of all, we, you know, it's been this, in the past, it's been this collaboration on play calling in Michigan. Uh, Pep Hamilton with Jim Harbaugh, with Tim Drevno last year. I don't know if uh, there was another, you know, cook in the kitchen this year or not I'm, I'm sort of blanking on if there's a third fate you know um voice on the headset but there's been a there's been a collaboration and play calling there and he's you know they're saying josh gaddis is now you know it's his deal he's calling the plays and and josh and so i think there's a few reasons if you're a michigan fan to be really encouraged by this one Obviously, you're still going to have Jim Harbaugh's sort of pro-style, physical, downhill uh, flavor to the offense. Right. But, but, I mean, Josh Gaddis has now worked under really James Franklin, which is sort of a West Coast, you know, kind of pro-style in nature offense that then shifted when Joe Moorhead came. So he's worked with Joe Moorhead, which is sort of true spread. Uh, and now he's worked at Alabama, which was – uh, RPO, nice balance of, of sort of spread concepts with some pro style concepts, and so you're getting a guy that has worked in a couple offenses now for two years in a row that have been really effective in scheming guys open into space and and getting playmakers the ball in a lot of different ways, which is sort of what Michigan's been missing is just sort of finding ways to feature their skill, and and so that. You know, who knows if, if Gaddis is going to be the real deal as a like play caller or offensive coordinator? I guess we'll, we'll you know we we can only there's no way of really knowing that, but he's an incredibly highly respected coach. He's a fantastic recruiter. He's a great communicator. He is undoubtedly a really good coach from a uh, player development standpoint. His receivers are always getting better and always some of the best coach in the league or in the country. Um, so for all that, like, I think it's a good hire and I, I think it's a good indicator that Jim Harbaugh might be willing now to take his hands off the offense a little bit and let it, let it modernize a little bit. Maybe, maybe I'm buying it. (laughs) I don't know. I, I like, I think that the, I think that Michigan's the, the urban Meyer, uh, stepping down, makes Michigan's next two to three seasons one of the most fascinating stories in college football because they never beat Urban. And next year, they'll have another year of Shea Patterson. And it certainly seems like, you know, whatever sort of Jim Harbaugh pressure, Jim Harbaugh hot seat, like uh, the more that I have investigated, the more that those all seem to be external storylines. There doesn't seem to be much at all within Ann Arbor, within that building, within that administration that is displeased with the where... Michigan's football program is at with Jim Harbaugh. And I think that with the changeover at Ohio State, there's there's a little bit of a window. 
and for Michigan football to actually win a Big Ten championship, for Michigan football to contend for a college football playoff spot, I I think that given that program's historical relevance to the sport and the lack of success on a national championship contention level over the last couple decades, I, I think the next two to three seasons are fascinating. And if Josh Gaddis is a plus value assistant coach, which I will mostly follow your lead, but also agree uh, based on the track record that he's put together, then he gets to be a part potentially of some of the most memorable uh, one of the most memorable little runs in Michigan football history. If Michigan wins a Big Ten championship, that's that's the best Michigan football season since the late nineties, may or maybe since the mid two thousands. Definitely in more than a decade. And it's a great um, opportunity for. I mean, if, if Michigan does do that, then Gaddis is suddenly going to be like the hottest assistant coach in college football. If that that was the difference in Michigan. Because it'll be framed that way, um, and so, it, it, and, and I, I think that, you know, they, I think Michigan, because look, Michigan also lost um, their defensive line coach to Ohio State as a co-defensive coordinator. They lost Al Washington, another assistant coach to Ohio State, who's one of their best recruiters. They've gotten rated a little bit too, um, but I also think that they they hired a guy from Boston College to coach. Defensive backs that I, I think. Oh, he's done an far, amazing job over the last three to oh, four that, seasons. Yeah, Anthony Campanile, and I don't even know if I'm saying his name right, but he's. I think he's been is one of the the another like just stud rising star, uh, and so they've done a good job reloading as well at Michigan on this coaching staff. Um, they you know, but it's it's all it's 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 inches, man. You gotta you know this all counts because this is. But the difference between Ohio State and Michigan in the past wasn't this year, but in the past has been inches, um, and uh, they're going to need every inch. Um, and T. Martin, interesting that uh, after you know prior to Jeremy Pruitt's hire in the post Greg Schiano madness, you know, like we were. I, I know I was. I was wondering aloud, why why wouldn't you give, and this was coming off of a pretty good Sam Darnold year, I said, why wouldn't you give T. Martin a look as the Tennessee head coach? T. Martin is back in Knoxville, uh, where, of course, he led the Vols to a national championship under Phil Fulmer. But my how, the, uh, my how his stock has changed in college football, Barton, because he's coming in as... Is he going to be offensive coordinator, offensive analyst, offensive assistant? Like the T. Martin returns to Tennessee is worth a headline, but what is the what is our assumed impact that Martin is going to have on Jeremy Pruitt's offense? Well, where T. Martin has had proven success is as a wide receivers coach and recruiting coordinator, or at least recruiter. Right? I mean, I I, I, I think he had the recruiting coordinator title, but he's a he's a fantastic recruiter. And he is a he's a really good wide receivers coach. I mean, USC under T. Martin has had really good wide receivers, and um, Tennessee's got a guy named David Johnson, who's I think a pretty good receivers coach as well. Uh, so whether you know again how the musical chairs work there, I don't know, but it's I mean he's recruited well wherever he's been, including Kentucky, uh, and I would imagine with him recruiting at his alma mater he's going to kill it. And Jeremy Pruitt's already, I think recruiting at a, at a higher level. 
So I think it's a, it's a great hire. I think if it's you know if Tennessee fans got to like just having having their boy home, um, but it's uh, I think it works. I think it makes sense. I think you know Tennessee is uh, finding a balance again. I mean that's a guy with more uh, more of a spread background with Jim Chaney, who's more of a pro style guy. Um, you know that they you know it's it's you just get the best the best people. And I think T. Martin is a is is a, continues to be one of the best hires in the country. If you're looking for someone that can really recruit uh, and really be a um, you know be a, a good value add on the on the staff, because you know the, he was a failed offensive coordinator this year for sure. Yes, absolutely. But, but um, I'm told that he is really well liked by the players. He is a really good coach as a receivers coach. Uh, so you know there's. There's reason to think that, you know, the the coaching side is, is not just a recruiting hire. Anything else? What what else is popping on your plate for uh, the assistant coaching carousel? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, interesting that Georgia promotes James Coley as their offensive coordinator. Um, you know, that's kind of another shrug hire, uh, but certainly kind of further empowers a guy that's been crushing South Florida in recruiting. Um, Pitt hired Mark Whipple as their offensive coordinator. Utah hires the Vandy OC, Andy Ludwig. Um, and then, uh, you know, interesting, I mean, Greg Madison and Jeff Halfley are the co-offensive coordinators at Ohio State. Uh, Halfley came from uh, the 49ers. Um, and, you know, I asked uh, uh, someone I know on that staff. I'd, I'd never heard the name before. Um, and I asked someone – I knew on that, that 49er staff and uh, the response I got was half is the best exclamation point, super smart players gravitate towards him. It was the right move. He will be a good college head coach in a couple years too. So wow, clear, clearly well-respected in that 49ers organization. Um, and uh, you know, so uh, you know, it's it, it sort of a little bit, not necessarily the, the, I don't know, expected hires under Ryan Day right away. I mean, kind of gone in an interesting direction, stealing a couple from Michigan, getting a guy that no one really knows from the NFL who sounds like has a really good reputation. But um, I think early indications are he seems to kind of know what he's doing um, uh, given just sort of the um, the responses that these guys have, have gotten and, and some of the you know some of the feedback you get about them. All right, before we get to Dennis Dodd, uh, with the draft deadline did – just pat, come and go. So I've got a couple teams that I think uh, had significant boosts from the announcements with guys deciding that they were going to come back, a couple schools that are going to have some holes to fill. So Barton, I will throw this to you. I don't think that any team, um, I, I don't think that there was any team that stood out to me more in terms of the getting better in terms of um, – what they were getting back, and the way that the tone has changed for 2019 than the Auburn Tigers. Derek Brown is going to be the, the, the superstar, and he's going to be getting uh, Marlon Davidson alongside him. Nick Coe is back. You know, this is, this is going to be... Um, this is going to be a defensive line that while it seemed like because of their veteran status, there was going to be a lot of turnover, but I'm looking at Auburn with these players all deciding to not go to the NFL draft. And I think that 
And, you know, as Gus Malzahn is perpetually on the hot seat and always does his best coaching job with his back against the wall, I think that uh, those those decisions seemed like they were going to be crucial for Auburn to be able to find success in 2019. Yeah, I mean, I, yes, I agree. That's a that's a great call, and that that does because those are those are all guys that not only could go, but I mean, in some, I mean, that's a little bit that's a little Clemsonish. It is that all those yes. guys came back. Yes, um, I mean, that's that is looking like the best defensive line in college football next year. And and so anytime you got a defensive line like that, you got a chance. Now uh, that's still it almost makes a creates a bigger question at the quarterback position. Like all right, you got this, you got the pieces here, really all over the place for to have, to have a really good to classic Gus Malzahn bounce back season. Uh, who's the quarterback going to be? And and so that's you know maybe it's Bo Nix, the true freshman, but. Um, uh, you know that that's gonna be that makes it that much more interesting and compelling to kind of pay attention to that quarterback battle because yeah I mean look all of a sudden we're here with, with Auburn and thinking like man this could be one of the better teams in the SEC. Uh, on the flip side of things, I, I thought that this is going to be an interesting season. We we mentioned some of the the coaching turnovers. Georgia promoting James Coley, having to replace both offensive and defensive coordinator. Uh, they also lost Riley Ridley, Miko Hardman. Uh, tight end and safety blacket, Isaac Nada. They obviously are going to have Jake Fromm leading the way. Um, but, you know, like Elijah Holyfield's gone, so it's all going to be on DeAndre, Smith, DeAndre Swift uh, until they wait for Zamir White to get healthy. And this Georgia team, I felt like, was one of the ones where, in particular, on the offensive side of the ball, they, they took a little bit of a hit. Yeah, man, that was an interesting group because... I don't necessarily like who's going to get drafted the highest out of that crew. Riley Ridley, maybe. I mean, I hate to bring this back to stupid fantasy football, but it's like I don't draft any of those guys for my fantasy football team. No, that's yeah. I mean, that's they're all rotation players. They're and they're all and 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 there's another like a um. So I would I would go so far as say that all you know that that crew was relatively surprising to see that them them leave. You know, maybe one or two of them, but all of them it collectively was a little bit of a surprise. I kind of said the same thing about Penn State too. Yes, uh, Ryan Bates, Kevin Givens, Connor McGovern, Sharif Miller, Miles Sanders, all gone. Um, and you know, Connor McGovern I think is supposed to be a pretty high draft pick, but I don't know. Aside from that, like it's not. None of those guys are guys that like I think the NFL is salivating over. And I, I, I it makes me wonder like, is that? In some ways, I wonder if that sort of hurts more than having the studs leave because you're, in some ways, and this probably this probably um, is more relevant for Penn State than Georgia. But in some ways, like some of those mid-level guys, you're expecting them to take the next step forward for you and be, you know, the the studs. And now the the guys that got to backfill them are, you know, those would be depth otherwise. And so, I, you know, that that. I do think that that, but I, for for some reason, as I look at Georgia and particularly the skill positions there, uh, it doesn't strike me that Georgia's got like a lack of talent returning at those spots. Okay. Um, and so I think t- you know Penn State's a little more concerning because you you get an offensive tackle, a defensive tackle, an offensive guard, a defensive end. Like anytime you're losing four line of scrimmage players, that worries me a little bit. Um, but I would imagine Georgia 
can still put together pretty good players behind those guys that are losing the skill spots. Okay, well, on the the flip side of the Penn State, this was one of the ones that I had as as a boost. You you lose you you just mentioned it. You lose the studs. LSU loses Devin White and Greedy Williams. Like those are two first round potentially top twenty picks. They have done a ton at their time at LSU. They've been the best, some of the best players in the country for the last two seasons. Ed Alexander also added to that list. But they get back Rashard Lawrence, uh, the big guy in the middle, Christian Fulton, who waited for two years to be able to be eligible and had a great impact on that secondary this season. Michael Divinity is back, and defensive lineman Braden Fooku comes back. Like That looks like an example of what you were mentioning where you got to expect that you're going to lose Devin White right. and Greedy, but you're getting all these other like second and third team all SEC players type back in a spot where they could be first team all SEC players in 2019. And by the way, LSU also has the number two player in the country and um, uh, Derek Stingley coming as a cornerback. Uh, he enrolled. They, they, can, it, they can now enroll like during bowl practice, um, if they're an early enrollees, he, he enrolled early and uh, had like three picks on Joe Burrow during practices. Uh, so he's he is if he's not the starting corner opposite Christian Fulton, I'll be surprised. And you know, not to hype him too much, but I wouldn't expect a major drop off from him and Greedy Williams uh, as even as a true freshman. So yeah, LSU, you know, not only recruiting some guys back. Uh, but also recruiting well in the high school ranks, so that that should you know that that's a program that should, especially with Joe Burrow in year two, um, you know that you got to feel good about uh, your your health heading into next season for them. And finally, uh, a personnel group that you know pretty well. So I'm very curious to hear what you have to think about the next players up. Notre Dame uh, losing Julian Love, not necessarily as much of a surprise, but also losing on the offensive side. Miles Boykin, a wide receiver, losing Alizé Mack at tight end. He certainly has that NFL-type tight end body. And then you you pile that on top of uh, 12th-year senior Drew Tranquil is going to be gone. Uh, 15th-year defensive lineman Jerry Tillery is going to be gone. You know, the, the Notre Dame exodus seems like one where because Notre Dame has done a good job of uh, identifying the right talent and developing talent over the last couple of years. I, I imagine that I will be learning new names here in the in the off season. But for the most part, you know, out, outside of the quarterback position, it does look like it's going to be a new Fighting Irish group from the team that was in the college football playoff. Yeah, I mean, my, I, I guess Miles. I'll be curious when Miles Boykin gets drafted. Um, that was an interesting one to me. Um, uh, Alize Mack feels like he's been there forever too. Like I'm, I'm kind of shocked he's not a senior. Uh, but I think they've got they've got guys. Um, and and I don't again, you know they've got whatever Kevin Austin who would probably be the starting outside receiver next year. Uh, but they've got some big guys like Javon McKinley who's a six two two hundred and twenty pounder and Micah Jones who's like six five. So they've still got some big dudes on the outside. Um, but that strikes me as kind of expect like Julian Love is the one that really I think stings and we saw Dante Vaughn really picked on in, in the playoffs for Notre Dame when Julian Love went out they they dropped a, a, a pretty good notch and that's very so they're going to need to find a replacement there um, but offensively I think that they'll they'll recover you know one, one that was interesting to me um, 
Vandy had a couple guys come back that are huge. They got Kalijah mm. Lipscomb coming back, uh, who's a receiver. Uh, they, they've got um, Keyshawn Vaughn, their running back coming back, and Jarrett Pinkney coming back at tight end. That is low-key one of the better skill groups in the SEC. Like, I'm not even kidding. Like, that's that's one of the top sort of three-headed monsters, receiver, tight end, running backs, I think, in the SEC um, next year. And so now they got Riley Reif, who's a, a grad transfer from Ball State. We'll see if he can get it to him. But that's a really that's a really interesting core unit returning for Vandy, a uh, team that had a pretty good year this year. All right, we will get to Dennis Dodd right after this. The perfect combination of versatile athleisure and training apparel has arrived. Thanks to the visionary minds of New Balance, Clutch Athletics, and Rich Paul, the designs reflect the heart of the athlete and the spirit of the community. With rising defensive football stars Will Anderson and Chase Young on the roster, Clutch Athletics brings the best innovative gear to all athletes, giving them style and performance on and off the field. Learn more and purchase Clutch Athletics at NewBalance.com. And now it's our pleasure to welcome to the Cover 3 Podcast once again, Dennis Dodd. You can follow him on Twitter at Dennis Dodd CBS, senior college football columnist for CBS Sports. Dennis, uh, we are sitting here recording on Tuesday, and the early entry deadline has come and gone. And the biggest name, without a doubt, came in the form of a very simple, uh, to-the-point tweet from Heisman Trophy winner Kyler Murray, I have declared for the NFL draft. What was your initial reaction to finding out that Murray would, in fact, be chasing this NFL draft status? I, I guess by now, not surprised. You know, we'd read enough about it, and we knew what kind of season he had that he was that type of player or could be drafted that high. It continues to amaze me how, I guess, you know, unprepared or, or bad planning the A's had. You know, first of all, they draft this guy ninth in June, top 10 overall, and then allow him to play football. Um you know, with the, at the risk of a, a season-ending injury, and now have no plan, uh, you know, in case he blows up. I mean, at some point, that has to be in the back of, of their minds, that he blows up and, and plays football. Um, and they've made no accommodation for it. So it looks like they're going to lose him. I suppose if he doesn't if it doesn't work out in football, he could come back around to, to baseball, but I think he'd have to be drafted over again. So I, I guess the, the initial impression is not, not surprised. Barton, were you surprised? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I guess that there's still, um, as I understand it, the A's still have a chance in this, and baseball still has a chance in this. He he declared for the draft to make sure that that option is available to him. But as I understand it, what, the February 12th spring 15th. training report date? Yeah. The 15th is sort of the, that's sort of the real deadline for, for the A's and for Major League Baseball to try to convince him to go um but i mean there's just the, the fact that he's now being and and we talked about it a lot Chip. i mean he, he's he didn't no one really saw this coming and now that he is basically being penciled in, in the first round uh, it's the the money and the marketing and the exposure and the visibility all sort of points to football being a a no-brainer decision particularly since the kid loves football and so uh yeah, it's 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 uh it's a tough blow for Major League Baseball if they lose them because of how marketable and uh and and how 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 much juice he would give to that sport. 
What? There's like, th- yeah, there's like three questions here. You know, obviously, is he good enough to be drafted that high? You know, we'll find out. Obviously, if he is, then the guarantee alone will take care is a better hedge against anything he might earn um, short of superstardom in the major leagues. And OK, if that yeah, the February 12th thing is a drop dead date. So does that void his contract with the A's? And then if he does come back to baseball, he would have to go through the process again, I guess. Right. I thought that there would be some certain drafting rights. Correct. Right. Like in, yeah, the, in the same way that, uh, you know, in the NBA or other professional leagues, if if they decide to come play in the association, they're going to come play here. I would I've got to think that there's some kind of language that would be agreed to that where Oakland, in order to ensure that it gets some kind of payoff on its investment, is going to be able to say, okay, and if you want to come back to Major League Baseball in the next X amount of years, whether that's three years or five years or whatever, that Oakland would be the place where he would go do it. Yeah, who who owns those rights and for how long? You know, how long do the A's own those rights? And I, I don't know that. What about chances for success um, within the NFL? Where would you set the ceiling, Barton, first? Well, I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's so <laughs> – look, I mean, all You're right, hedging. so let, let's – I mean, the, the ceiling is the, – the, I guess the, the cop is the cop Russell Wilson. Um, he's or, five. Or, ba- or Baker, or Baker, I guess, right? Or not? Yeah, oh, you're, you know, talk, you're talking about the ceiling. The ceiling. Yes. Well, no, I'm talking about the cop. I'm talking about the cop. I mean, may, maybe the cop is Baker Mayfield. I mean, if Kyler has been a little bit more run centric in college, I mean, Baker Mayfield is just sort of extend the plays. Sure. Uh, imp- improvisations, but but really, uh, Kyler's been about like having a run game element, and I guess you know not that that's a big part of Russell Wilson's game at this point, but it's it was. As, am I remembering this right? I mean, he was a pretty run. Uh, he he yes. ran a pretty good bit at Wisconsin too, right? He Russell Wilson. He blew people's minds with the Seahawks when he came in doing zone read because he was coming in uh, messing up defenses with that at the same time that Kaepernick was. And and so there's, but obviously, it, um, and and Lamar Jackson came in and he's had a pretty good initial punch, but that all these guys have to evolve. Away from the run game eventually, and I, I you know, look if, if Russell Wilson can play at his height, uh, I think Kyler, Mar- Kyler Murray's arm talent's there. He can come in initially and be a guy that people have a hard time figuring out how to stop, and then his his pass game can evolve. So I, I'm gonna say, like, particularly given this is his first, this was his first year starting in college football. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, like I'm. I'm okay with a first round grade. Like I think a first round pick is I think he's worthy of a first round pick given what he's done in his career. Again, look at the Cliff we talked about last last show, Chip. Look at the Cliff Kingsbury train of thinking uh in terms of evaluating a quarterback. Forget the the forget the the, the measurables. Uh look at what he's done from a productivity and from a competitive standpoint over the course of his career. There's not there's not a better resume in like the history of modern football. He's Kyler never Murray's. been if bad. If you if you're starting in high school all the way to college, he has not had a, a starting season. He's not had a game in his entire football career. He has not had a game where he has been anything less than excellent as a starting quarterback. 
and and the game is coming to him. You know, I saw a tweet yesterday from Oklahoma's SID. You know, in response to the questions about Kyler's height, <laughs> he was officially measured at five nine and seven eighths. Can you imagine this? Five years ago, three years ago, I can't. I, four years ago, I looked it up. Four years ago, Bruce Arians, the head coach of the Arizona Cardinals, was screaming about these guys come to us unprepared and they don't know how to call plays and they're not under center. Well, I don't have to tell you who the, the coach of the Arizona Cardinals is today. So the game is coming to Kyler Murray as it's come to Baker Mayfield, it's come to some other quarterbacks, and he'll be given every opportunity because I, I don't think the NFL has – as a whole has embraced everything that college football has to offer in terms of the spread and RPOs. Yeah. Has, has Mahomes and the chiefs done it? Yes. Have the Rams done it? Yes. Have some other teams done it? Yes. But they're at, at, the way the NFL is trending right now. They are, there's going to be people out there that are willing to put their whole franchise on a five, nine, you know, and seven, eight inch quarterback who can absolutely create space and has, has the arm talent, like you said, to get down the field until further notice. And I think that's what, that's, that's what everybody is seeing. You know, we didn't know this, you know, the last we saw of him at A&M, he was transferring and, you know, taking shots at uh, Kevin Sumlin on the way out the door kind of cryptically. And we, we had no idea that he'd be this good. So the game is coming to him. He'll have every opportunity to succeed. Screaming at Jake Spavital on the sidelines. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I was going to say, I, I think you're right, Barton, because I don't think he started any of those games, but there were a few performances that were not uh, highlights for Kyler Murray during his, his limited time with the Aggies, but uh, that that certainly seemed to be as, as much a result of interpersonal dynamics as scheme or performance um, and, there. And there's also, like, the, if, if the air raid slash spread quarterback NFL bubble yeah is about to burst I mean Kyler Murray could be he could be the the the, the needle that that you know pokes that bubble and bursts it um so I mean is is this is this the beginning are we just getting started with all these spread quarterbacks and the and Mahomes and Goff and and Lamar Jackson and all these sort of non-traditional in the way we view quarterbacks are we just getting started in this or, or or are we getting fooled by some really freakish talents to where it's it's actually something that that might be uh you know defenses are going to catch up to it or or that the bubble starts to burst and we're going to get fooled i i don't know i i lean towards kyler murray just you know you know the, the way the rules are in place in the nfl game the way coaches are catering towards these these sort of talents and playing to them, I, I lean towards a guy like Kyler Murray being able to be successful. That's a that's a great column, actually. You know, is this the beginning or is this this just a bubble about to burst? That, the, that's it. I think I idea. think I think you're 100 percent right, Barton. That is a good point. I think Kyler Murray is going to be a very very important indicator in where we are in that. Uh, speaking of college to the NFL. Dennis, you got a chance on on a recent swing south through the Lone Star State to spend some time catching up with Matt Rule, who in the second spin of the coaching carousel, as our as our college football coaches were were getting interviews and were getting attention from the NFL, Matt Rule has just he has received uh, the stamp of approval from someone within the football world. He mm-hmm. he, he comes up every single year and it's it's comments that you get from NFL insiders like 
People just love the way he runs a program. People just love his organizational skills. It is clear that outside of the wins and losses that Matt Rule has on his resume, and there's great work at Temple, the trajectory is pointing up at Baylor, it's clear that Matt Rule has done something at either these coaching conventions or in his brief time at the <laughs> NFL to impress a lot of people. You got a chance to talk to him. You know Where is his head at in terms of uh, how he views his next five to ten years with the college game and when at any point he might be wanting to entertain an NFL job. Well, I talked, I talked to the athletic director back Rhodes, and with, without him saying it, he said it, you know, they're just resigned to the fact that, you know, he, he's going to be that, that guy in the NFL someday and whatever they get out of him at Baylor is going to be gravy at this point, because we know he's interviewed twice in two years after uh, both seasons at Baylor jets and Colts, and I, you know, I tried to dig down and figure out why he spent one year in the NFL as an assistant offensive line coach with the Giants. Now, I'm sure he's got many more contacts than that in the NFL, but he is, I think it's been underplayed. What he's done at Baylor was an absolute train wreck when he took over. They go 1-11 to 7-6, and six, a five-and-a-half game improvement, which I don't know, may have led the country this year. I haven't checked yet. Um, and they're going, they're going to be better. I mean, he's... You have to remember when he took over in late December of of sixteen. Was it sixteen? They had one commit, um, and that was it. Um, coming into signing day, and then he's able to get these guys going at this point. But I, I think this his, his stock line is he tells his players, you know, hopefully this happens every year that I'm interviewing with the NFL because it means we're succeeding, and I hope it keeps happening. But if it keeps happening sooner or later, he's he's going to get a job. Um, and, and and I again. Without saying it, I think he realizes it's worse than it than he thought it was at at Baylor. Let's not forget they're under investigation, major investigation at Baylor for institutional control, and you know no one can tell if you, you want to lay money on the the fact that they might get a bull dan, that would be crippling. They don't think they're going to get one, but I can fill up a a keg with the amount of schools that thought they weren't going to get one and did. So that that's a dicey proposition as well. So they, the, okay, catch me up. Yeah. What, what all, what all could they be like? Is this all still going back to the Art Brow stuff? They, the, the, the NCAA this is still sniffing around. And- yeah, this is, I've written about it, but this is basically it. The NCAA, first of all, he didn't think when he took the job and, and Baylor didn't think they, you know, they thought it was over as far as the NCAA was concerned. There wasn't any reason to come in because he, and NCA didn't have the stomach to even sniff around something that hinted at Penn State. Well, this is a formal enforcement investigation. This is not coming in from outside the reservation. Basically, the investigation is about whether any of those players who were either accused or charged or anything, were they allowed to play or practice without going through the school's traditional adjudication process. In other words, you know, there's a student handbook. If you're accused of X, then you have to go through, you know, in front of a student council, blah, blah, blah. And and the NSA will hit you for that. They got Syracuse basketball for that. You know, if you don't follow your own rules, then that's an NCA violation. And I think that's what they're looking at. And the fact that they sent that letter of inquiry last year um, saying there's possible institute, lack of institutional control involved raised a lot was surprising to everyone. But that's basically what, you know, did they play, did they play players that per school policy should have been held out the moment they were accused? 
I so think, Matt Rule, go ahead. Go well, ahead. I was going to say, I, I just think the answer is yes, right? Like you just, you, well, it, it, it would it would seem as so, yes. Yeah, and so you've just got to hope that this is going to be. Uh, I say this a lot with NCAA cases and, and major programs that you know are you going to pa- are you going to punish the past, the present, or the future? And if you're a current Baylor football coach or current Baylor football player or you know part of the athletic department, you're just hoping that this ends up with uh, yes, this, the NCAA has found this, this, and this player played in these, these, these games, and so we're going to wipe them from the record. And that uh, this NCAA formal investigation just only ends up punishing the past rather than the yeah. present or the future. Yeah, there's there's no there's literally no one there who had anything. Right. To do. I mean, so, what a what what yeah what a I mean, what a shame that would be if if yeah. the current players and current staff like everyone go to go to Liberty and you know <laughs> penalize them for, for hiring the athletic director that oversaw yeah. this or or go to yeah. you know Florida State and you know, I don't, I, it'd be it would just be crazy to, to actually punish Baylor for yeah. something that all the guys that did that have left. And, um, and part of their argument in this is, look, we followed everything Pepper Hamilton, the infamous Pepper Hamilton, recommended, including those. I think it was 105 bullet points to improve things athletically and socially and culturally at Baylor. They've adhe- adhered to them all. Which, you know, I think is significant. You can take your shots at Baylor. But again, there's no one there responsible for what happened. Um, you know, it's, it's – did you talk to – did you just talk to the athletic director? Did you, talk, did you talk to uh, Matt Rule as well? Uh, both, both. So, so, it, it's, so it's sort of interesting to me that he's willing and open to sort of talk about this. Um, and I don't know. It's, it's almost refreshing that he's admitting, you know what? Yeah, the NFL's intriguing and and yeah. they're interested in me and I'm interested in them and you know, it's it, the the fact that he's sort of open about the process to me is a little bit refreshing and and uh you know, what 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 college head coach who's not at one of the top 3 or 4 jobs in the country wouldn't sort of entertain NFL interest. No, right. And that's, there. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's the feeling. I mean, how many how many Coaches that any of us know had formal interviews with NFL teams to be a head coach the last two years. That ought to tell you something about the guy. So, um, no, I think you're right. And this is going to be, I, I would imagine it's only going to increase because I, I would think, and the Big 12 is going to be good next year, especially yeah. given the sort of, I mean, across the boards, it's a pretty strong conference for coaching right now. I think um, you know. It looks like Matt Campbell is hit. Uh, Matt Rule is hit. Um, the you know we always have Gary Patterson. Obviously, Tom Herman's turned the corner. Lincoln Riley. Uh, Neil. We think Neil Brown's a good hire at West Virginia. Even Chris Kleiman. At, at I mean, this yes. is just a, it's a it's a conference that appears to be. I, I think has had it, some really good hiring cycles, but given the way and I, and I think they evaluate really well at Baylor, and and I think if they continue to evaluate and develop the way they are and they got their quarterback coming back who they love yeah um that could be a program that has another really good year and 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 the noise will only continue to increase from there and and so far it hasn't uh you know eaten itself from within the best teams have risen to the top you know with a a conference that plays round robin like that the in any given year it's a chance for everybody just beat each other and knock each other off like a like a pac-12 scenario which has happened um but they've had that and, you know, they've been very good. I was, I always bring this up when people start talking about conference strength. 
how do, or, or, con, or expansion of the bracket in the playoff. How do you measure a conference like the SEC that takes six years to funnel through every team? It takes you know, an average of six years for teams to play every other team in the conference. Big 12 does it every year. <laughs> so how do you even compare that? Yeah. Um, Dennis, you, this is the time of year when the NCAA finalizes all of its statistics that you always write a fun feature for cbssports.com to take a look at some of the, the big picture tidbits and some of the observations from a season's worth of football compared to years past. What's uh, give, give the people a little tease. What stood out this year? Well, to, to no one's surprise, this is, was the, uh, Second highest scoring season ever, 29.5 points per game per team per game. Two years ago was a record. I think it was 30.08. So it's down a little bit. Um, the uh, there will be records set in, I believe, and I haven't crunched the numbers yet. Uh, number of pa- uh, passing accuracy, which continues to improve across the board, as you can see. Just look at the top of the charts and the players we're talking about. It just it just becomes more, um, you know, a, a better, better coaches, better players at that point. And, and rushing yards continue to climb as in these zone, these spread offenses. The best thing you can do is be balanced. And a team that has done that really continually throughout the last ten years is, is Oklahoma State. It's amazing how much they've been able to have a, a real balance between uh, running and passing. Uh, the leading. Uh, the leading returning rusher, I'm sorry, the leading returning career passer is one Mason Fine from North Texas. Um, he was a no star out of rural Oklahoma and has become one of the best group of five quarterbacks. I'm sure, Barton, you know about him. Over 9,000 yards. I like to look at that kind of stuff. You know, the, lead, the leading active guys coming, coming to next year. And Graham Harrell, his offensive coordinator, getting yes. a little bit of buzz around the, you, you, you know, you, you may. You may have some insight on that. I don't know. I mean, I, I would imagine U- USC is a school that's maybe kicked the tires there. I mean, he he's, seems to be sort of the next up-and-coming uh, star. I mean, and speaking of the other team you mentioned, Oklahoma State, Mike Yurcich heading to, mm-hmm. to Ohio State, um, which I think strikes me as a really good hire there as well. Um, but but that's that. Those are those are the guys. Those are the hot names. The guys that can can put up those sort of numbers. Yeah, and look and look at the. Uh... I was going to mention this. Look at the NFL. If if the NFL hasn't gone whole hog in RPOs and spread offense, neglect to mention that Kingsbury, Cliff Kingsbury is the is the example. I mean, a guy that got fired for losing at Texas Tech, but is a heck of a play caller, uh, is now a head coach in the NFL. You know, we'll we'll find you a defensive coordinator. We'll find you some players on that side of the ball, but just show us that magic that everybody's using. And you're right about Graham Harrell. I think he'd be a guy that might get might get a call from USC. Well, and part of the reason that the NFL is is being drawn to these offensive coaches and quarterback coaches is, I mean, I'm in Nashville. Look at the Titans. So they they just um, Matt Lafleur just got hired away as the offensive coordinator, quarterbacks coach at the Titans to go be the head coach of the Green Bay Packers. Well, Mike Vrabel. Bra- is now he's got to find another coordinator, another quarterback coach to to guide his franchise quarterback in this offense, and it's it's a lot, it's a lot, of, you know, and it's such a quarterback focused league in the NFL. Oh yeah, they, they want the head coach to be, in, you know, with, with some firm footing 
So he's there year over year to to develop those offenses. And so, uh, you know, you could find a defensive coordinator if those guys get a head job, but no one wants to hire them anyways. They want these 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 offensive gurus. And so that's sort of the appeal to a guy like Cliff Kingsbury. And, um, I mean, it was fascinating, too. He almost hired – or he tried to hire uh, – Jake's Pavadol to be his offensive coordinator in the NFL. It sounded like, yeah. which is just, yeah. I mean, doubling down on 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 the college trend. I mean, a guy that was just an offensive coordinator at West Virginia going to be an offensive coordinator for the, the Cardinals. Well, they um, bo- they both had wild. Johnny Manziel at A and M, I think, together when they were on the same staff. So that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that's true. It's uh, and I, I'm sitting here in Kansas City where um, Eric Bieniemy is the quote-unquote offensive coordinator, but he doesn't call plays. It's Andy Reid. Right. You know, all that stuff you see with Mahomes, that's straight from the mind of of Andy Reid. But but he's got enough uh, – and Eric bannaby has been around the NFL a while. He's got enough juice. So I think he interviewed with two teams already. But if you see him, if you watch games on the sideline, he's standing next to Andy Reid just kind of watching. And I don't want to, you know, dispense or you know downgrade what he does with the team, but he's not calling plays. But yeah. he, could, he could be a head coach in the NFL. Mm. He is Dennis Dodd. You can follow him on Twitter at Dennis Dodd CBS. Uh, Dennis, always great to catch up. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. <laughs>